And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the Tuesday edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, as we kick off this pre-inflation day. That's right, tomorrow of course, is the next big CPI report. And it's amazing, you know, we used to have these CPI reports, nobody ever paid attention to them. Now they are the market moving event of the week. So we either have, it's the Fed uh, meeting day, it's the employment report or CPI. That's what moves the markets these days. Because it's all tied back to maybe what the Fed will do next. Now, as of the last FOMC meeting, of course, we just had that uh, uh, last week. Um, the Federal Reserve's kind of made the statement that they were maybe on pause right now. Now, they're going to be looking at the incoming data to make their next policy decisions. But the hint that they gave was that maybe they're done for the moment, right? That was how we left that last FOMC meeting with the Federal Reserve. Now, tomorrow's inflation data might change that attitude a bit, depending on how it comes in. Right now, expectations are that uh, inflation will rise slightly, but there are some potential uh, issues out there. Rent has been rising as of late, etc., that could suggest a bit hotter than expected CPI report tomorrow. We'll see what the number is, but uh, the issue for the markets will be if that number comes in hotter than expected or shows that inflation remains much more sticky, um, that might put the Federal Reserve in a position that they may start considering another rate hike. Of course, uh, that's not what the market's been kind of hoping for uh, over the last couple of weeks as markets have I've really kind of treaded water here despite the issues with the banking crisis, etc. Markets have held up here very well. Still on a sell signal right now and working through that, of course, um, but that is normal here. This consolidation combined with the sell signal, kind of a normal process. Uh, in, a, in a rising trending market. And that's what we've had really since October. But tomorrow's CPI report can certainly put a damper on that. This morning, we have the National Federation of Independent Business data also coming out, and that's important. And it doesn't get a lot of airtime, doesn't get a lot of press time, uh, because it's a, it's a report about small private businesses, but it's actually very important. Small businesses make up a very large chunk of the employment in the country. They make up a large chunk of the hiring, and small businesses are integral really to the operation of the economy. So what they say and do actually has a very important impact on not just the financial markets, uh, but the economy as a whole. And so uh, that report out this morning, of course, that, in, that indicator, that confidence index, that you know, the confidence of small businesses, has been really in very recessionary territory for quite some time. So we're looking there to see if there's any sign that small business owners are starting to get a little bit more optimistic. Maybe the worst is behind us. Maybe they've had enough of a drawdown in inventories. Uh, maybe they're seeing some uh, pickup in sales. You know, that's you know what we'll be paying attention to closely to see if the activity for small businesses is beginning to turn at all, right? Because it's been pretty much in a very recessionary territory across a variety of metrics for quite some time. Uh, so we'll need to look for any signs of incremental improvement that maybe that economic data is starting to trough here a bit. Now, again, too early to tell that. We'll have that report out this morning. So we'll certainly talk about that tomorrow as well. But again, that inflation number is also going to be very important because of its potential impact on whether or not the Fed 
remains aggressive. Um, if there's any potential hint that they might need to hike rates more, uh, you know, in, in reality, there's probably no possibility at all right now that the data tomorrow will suggest that the Fed should start cutting rates. But whether or not they hike rates again is going to be a bigger, kind of a bigger issue for the markets overall because of that tightening policy. Now, talking about tightening, uh, one of the things we've been waiting for is for the uh, bank report to come out about lending standards. That data was released on Monday. And it shows, not surprisingly, that because of what's been going on with the regional banks, of course, with interest rates as well, that banks are starting to become uh, a lot more reluctant to lend money. <laughs> so not surprising, loans to small businesses of all sizes, not just small businesses, but medium and large credit conditions are tightening. And that has acted and will act as a de facto rate hike. In fact, that was a point that Jerome Powell made during his press conference that, and actually in the statement itself, talking about lending standards from banks were actually doing the job for the Fed by acting as de facto rate hikes because, again, less credit to the economy. Uh, that, you know, bank loans and credit are the lifeblood of the economy. You know, we talk about the stock market all the time, but really it's all about credit and how credit moves within the economy because businesses borrow money for inventories or to build plants or to make acquisitions, et cetera. So when credit slows down, that's certainly going to impact economic activity to a large degree. Those lending standards tightened even more in the latest report. Again, another potential rate hike, but importantly, like Fed rate hikes, bank lending standards have a lag effect to them, which means that just because they hike uh, or tighten lending standards today, the impact of that won't show up into the economy for six to nine months. And so as these lending standards get tighter, it's the future drag on economic growth. And, and just think about, you know, why, right? You know, the reason there's a, there's a lag effect, the bank today tightens lending standards. Well, you may not be wanting a loan today. You may wait a month or two or whatever, and then something comes up in your business, you need to go get a loan. You find out, well, you don't qualify anymore. Lending standards are tighter. Also, even if you do qualify, it generally takes some time to get a loan put together. It could be a couple of months to go through the, lo the loan underwriting process, get all your data together, get the loan approved, get it funded. That could take four, eight, 12 weeks. So there's that lag effect in the economy as well. So as those lending standards tighten, it's the future window of economic activity we need to be paying attention to. So between Fed rate hikes, which have a six to nine month lag, tighter lending standards, which have a six to nine month lag, the impact to the economy is still coming. And we haven't seen that to a lot of, uh, a lot of degree yet, but yet the market continues really to kind of price in this idea of a no recession landing in the economy. And that's the, you know, this is the big difference. Um, you know, on one side of the ledger, we have a lot of people very bearish about the markets, suggesting that we have another big leg lower coming. And that would be true if we have a fairly constrictive recession in the economy. If we don't have a recession, if it's possible the bulls are right, and the economy is able to avoid a recession because of all, and we're going to talk about this this morning, uh, coming up in the next segment, about monetary liquidity. But because of all this monetary liquidity that's in the system, is it possible that, and this is what the bulls are hoping for, that the economy can avoid a recession, and in that case, 
the market is already pricing in improving economics later this year. So again, it's, it's a really tough situation. Depends on what camp you're in and what your view is. But this is, the, as we talked about this yesterday, is that this is the challenge of investing money. What is happening in the markets today versus what we expect to happen in the markets to, uh, tomorrow, next month, next quarter. But those are all based upon assumptions which can certainly change. So there's the challenge. How do we invest today for something we don't know what it's gonna turn out to be in the next few months? So again, lots of things to talk about, but I do want to talk about this monetary liquidity. This may be one of the missing ingredients that is missing from the analysis about the markets and about the economy that people expecting a much deeper recession may have missed. So we'll talk about that coming up after the break. Get by the website. We have a new article out this morning talking about can bulls and bears both be wrong based on their positioning in the markets and in the bond market. That's on the website this morning, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be. And knowing how health insurance works after you leave your job is vital. Our next Lunch and Learn will tackle transitioning to Medicare. Thursday, May 11th with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. How will Medicare work with the insurance you already have? What are the deadlines you need to know for signing up for Medicare? Register now for our Transitioning to Medicare Lunch and learn with Ratliff and Rosso at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com The Real Investment Show So from time to time, uh, we've been talked, we have talked about and both written about as well is the impact of monetary liquidity on economic activity. Uh, one of those is an article that we wrote called Sugar Rush, um, dates back to 2020 when we first started implementing, you know, massive amounts of direct checks to households at the time. And we were seeing checks to households and everybody was like, oh, this is fine. Don't worry about it. It's not going to cause you problems. And we said, look, this is going to cause two things. First, it'll cause a big spike in inflation because you're sending checks to households. And the second thing is, is that it's going to create a very sharp spike in economic activity, which it did. Right. And that, that's not, you know, rocket science. Everybody kind of, you know, anybody with a basic economics understanding can go, oh, yeah, that makes complete sense because if I send money to somebody to spend, they are going to spend it. Now, importantly, that is very different. This is one of the issues that we've been challenged with over the last decade is the Fed's you know, monetary kind of quantitative easing, right, and, and why that didn't increase monetary velocity in the economy, why it didn't increase M2 as, as a potential of money supply. And it didn't, it didn't cause inflation. Everybody's like, well, well the, you know, the Fed's printing money, and so that's going to cause inflation. It never caused inflation. The reason was is the Fed wasn't really printing money. They were doing asset swap. They were just simply swapping 
with banks. They would credit their reserve accounts with some digital ones and zeros, and they would take the asset off their books. So it was just a, it was just an asset swap was all it was. It didn't increase the money supply. Therefore, it didn't have an impact on the economy. Sending checks to households is a much different story, right? So we actually printed money and sent money directly to households for people to spend. So, of course, you're going to get a massive surge in, in, the, in the monetary supply. And you're going to get economic activity from that because people are going to spend that money in the economy. And then you're also going to get inflation because at the same time that we did that, we also shut down the economy so we couldn't produce any supply. So demand far outseated, uh, far outstripped supply, and that created inflation. So that's history. That's what we know, right? That's easy, easy and provable. And what we said was in the Sugar Rush article is that once all this activity was burned up, you know, kind of, you know, like generally, you know, giving your kid a whole bunch of sugar and they run around for 30 minutes, and then crash in the corner somewhere. That was what would happen with the economy. As soon as we got that liquidity out of the system, the economy was going to slow down sharply. Now we're seeing that, but see that liquidity is still in the system. And this is the part where, you know, people kind of have a misunderstanding is that just because I sent, you know, I, I send a check to the to a household, right? I send I send money to Brent. And Brent goes out and spends his check. That doesn't mean the money's gone, right? He 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 cashed the check, he spent the check, he bought something, right? And so we have a we have an economic boost because of that activity. But then the assumption is is well now that money's spent, so it's gone. And that's not really the way it works because that money is still largely in the economy right now, which is why economic data remains so resilient. And we have not had this recession yet. Everybody's been predicting recession, uh, you know, since last year. Calls for recession have been very elevated, right? Everybody's predicting a recession, yet it hasn't happened. And the economic data <clears throat> continues to defy logic to some degree. It's like, well, how can you have higher interest rates and inverted yield curves and not have a recession? This has always caused a recession, so I need to be out of the markets because we're going to obviously have this recession. But yet it hasn't happened yet. First quarter GDP was 1.1%. Estimates for second quarter are above 2 right now. So no sign of recession at the moment. Not saying it's not going to come. Not saying it's not going to happen. I'm not saying that at all. It just hasn't happened yet. And the reason is because of a couple of things, and this is monetary liquidity. So I send a check to Brent, right? And Brent spends it. Well, the pro when he spends that check, that money, there's, you know, there's, uh, let me, let me, let me rephrase this. There's a better understanding of this because this happens during hurricanes and this is called the broken window fallacy. There's an old saying where, you know, a bread maker, somebody breaks his window. So he has money to spend that he was going to spend on buying a new piece of apparatus to help him make more bread, right? But instead of spending the money on that, he has to now go to the glazer to make a new window. The glazer has to go and buy the, the product that he needs to make the glass to replace the window for the bread maker. 
And so the point about this is that it's not just one action. It's not just Brent going out and spending money. It's all these subsequent actions that occur. Brent goes to buy a, a widget that is comprised of some components. So, yes, he can buy the widget from the retailer who then turns around and spends that money buying more widgets from the wholesaler who then turns around and buy <clears throat> and spends that money buying more of the uh, product that it needs on a wholesale basis from the manufacturer who then spends that money buying the commodities in order to the manufacture the widget the people he buys the commodities from then spend that money paying the wages and buying equipment, et cetera, for the manufacturing of the commodities to supply to the manufacturer to build the widget who then gets sold to the wholesaler, who's sold to the retailer, who finally winds up with Brent. The point is, is that money stays in circulation for much longer than people expect. M2, as a percentage of GDP, is still exceptionally high. Yes, the, the year-over-year rate of change in M2 has plummeted, but that is not the thing to pay attention to. The only reason that M2 has plummeted on a year-over-year basis is because we're not sending checks to households. That does not mean the money's still not in the system. We're just not adding fuel to the fire, so to speak. That's just one aspect. A lot of analysts have also missed the fact that we have $1.7 trillion in the Inflation Reduction Act, which is now getting spent in the economy for companies all lining up to get their piece of the pie to build and take on and develop, et cetera, new green technologies. That's another $1.7 trillion in federal spending that was not there before. In fact, if you take a look at federal expenditures on a quarter-over-quarter -quarter basis, the quarter-over-quarter -quarter rate of change in Q4 was about 2.74%. It's up over 3% in the first quarter. So federal spending is rising, not declining. That's the Inflation Reduction Act. So all of this monetary support is in the economy, and this is the one thing that is frustrating a lot of people. It's like, well, why aren't we having a recession? There's guaranteed we're going to have a recession. No, it's not guaranteed is my point. There's certainly a lot of indicators that suggest a recession is possible. In fact, you can even go to the point that it says an inflation is a recession is probable. It does not mean it's guaranteed. And this is the frustrating situation that exists right now because as we look at what the markets are doing and try to parse that against what the 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 economy and the economic data says you know you have these very divergent messages and nobody wants to lose money right so the bearish arguments certainly carry a lot of weight and merit because they are based upon very factual historical data Every time these things have happened in the past, there's always been a recession. Those recessions have always resulted in a market-related drawdown of somewhere between 25 and 30%. Certainly a very valid argument. The difference, as we've talked about before, is from a market perspective, 
everybody's expecting a recession. And historically, markets have a very strong propensity to climb a wall of worry. In other words, the market is simply pricing in all of these views. And remember, the market has been well aware of all this economic data for the last year, because we've been talking about a recession since April of last year when the Fed started hiking interest rates. Every time, the, the arguments in April of last year that started then with the Fed's first rate hike in March was every time the Fed has started a rate hiking campaign has always resulted in a recession. The more aggressive that those rate hikes became, the more vocal the media and the analysis became about a recession because of the aggressiveness of the rate hikes, yet it has not happened yet. Doesn't mean it won't. But it hasn't happened yet. And since October, markets have been rallying from the lows Earnings have come in better than expected in the first quarter. This morning, Palantir will be up about 20% on, the, on that news. And the thing that we have to consider when we think about our positioning in the markets and how we're navigating things is this massive amount of money that's still floating through the economy. That's the thing we have to consider because that is impacting earnings. Now, when we come back from the break, I'm going to tell you the other side of the story, which is that even if the bullish thesis is true, it might not be as bullish as you think. More coming up on the, on the Real Investment Show right after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so just for the break just talking about this issue of monetary liquidity that's still within the system that, that is supporting economic data and despite all of the bearish rhetoric, markets continue to perform bullishly. And, and, you know, earnings season has not been terrible. And markets are basically flat. Um, there's been some big winners, obviously, coming out of earnings season so far, which have been mostly tech stocks, um, particularly those talking about artificial intelligence, uh, have gotten a, a quite a bid. But let's assume for a moment that the bullish case is true and that the worst is behind us and that the October lows were the lows and that if we even if we do have a recession it'll be a somewhat mild recession it'll be over fairly quickly and then the economy can get back to more normal activity 
there's a couple of things to, to think about, though, in that regards is that, yes, let's just assume for a moment, just stick with me, that we are in a bull market. Does that mean that we're going back to the days of, of yore, where we're going to be seeing very large rates of return every year, stocks going to the moon, et cetera? There's certainly some concerns about that. And, and one of the things to think about is there are some differences going forward that even if we're in a bull market, it may not be as bullish as many are hoping for. A lot of investors only know the market that we saw for the most part from 2009 to 2020. And they're used to those kind of rates of return. Those are normal, right? Those have become normalized over the last years that the market, oh, that's what the markets normally do. That's not exactly the case. Let me just, uh, I've got a few charts to share with you this morning. So first of all, let's just, you know, you know the, the, the old argument is valuations. Valuations are still high. And historically, when you have very high valuations in the markets and there's a long-term historical correlation between valuations and returns, and that based on where current valuations are, returns on the markets are normally lower, uh, somewhere between 0 and, and 5% on average. Now, that's what valuations tell us. But valuations are very long-term in nature. And that says that over the next 10 years to 20 years, valuations suggest that returns could be lower. But there is a dynamic that, uh, that is very important to understand here is that when we're talking about lower valuation, uh, sorry, higher valuations and lower returns, one of the things that we're going to have to learn as investors is that what we saw over the last decade was not normal. If you, I have a chart here, um, so if you're watching our live stream, you can see it. If not, I'll explain it for you. From 1928 to 2021, now this data is based on uh, total return data from the New York University Stern School of Business. From 1928 to 2021, the average rate of return, this is average, right? 8.48% a year. And that's where you get all these numbers from, you know, from advisors and stuff saying, oh, just, you know, markets return 8, 10% a year, just stick that number in. Well, that's the return. And that's based on economic growth and inflation and capital appreciation. I'll, I'm going to explain more of that in a second. So stick with me. From 1928 to 1999, so let's just take out everything pre 2000. The markets returned about nine and a quarter percent a year. So that's that 10% rate of return that advisors have kind of stuck with over the years. Oh, put your money in the market, it compounds at 10% a year, you're great. Now, we know from experience that doesn't actually happen, but sounds good on paper. From 1972, so let's start just prior to the last big kind of inf you know, inflation, you know, bear market, et cetera. 1972 to 2021. Markets returned about 8.13% a year. So the, the point is, is between 1928, no matter how you want to slice and dice the periods, you wind up right around 8% or so in terms of returns. Now, here's the important part. From 2012 to 2021, the markets returned 12% annualized. That is 400 basis points more than the long-term average of 1928 to 2021, right? So you're talking about adding on 50% more in returns than what the average was on almost a 100-year period. Now, we're talking about how we got there in a second, but just 
Stick with me for a minute. From 2009 to 2021, it was 13.8%, 500 basis points more than the long-term average. And from 2017 to 2021, it was 15.5%, almost 100% more in returns in that period than what we saw in any previous period over the last 100 years. How did we get there? Fed interventions. Since 2009, and this numbers, this, this chart is just a, a, a tad dated here, so just bear with me. It's actually wor- the numbers are worse than it appears right now. But between 2008, actually the end of 2008, when we started HAMP, HARP, TARP, all these bailouts. We have put in about $44 trillion worth of monetary supports within the economy between quantitative easing, bailouts, Fed interventions, $5 trillion in stimulus checks. It's all in there, $44 trillion. And we've increased economic growth by only $4 trillion. So in other words, we were spending $10 for every dollar's worth of earnings and economic growth that we were getting. That's what gave us that extra 400 basis points of return over the last 10 years. As I said in the last segment, that monetary liquidity is still staying in the system, and that's what's keeping markets elevated because all that $5 trillion still sloshing around the economy, keeping economic activity going to some small degree right now. But here's the problem with this. You can actually see this if we take a look at the annual rates of return uh, in the markets, in the economy, et cetera, going back to 1947. This is data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. But we can see in 2021, EPS growth grew by 110% in 2021. We have negative economic growth this year. If you take a look at the annualized S&P growth, that was obviously stronger because of stronger earnings and economic growth had a big surge well above the average long-term return of economic growth because of all that liquidity that we put in the system. The point is this, is how are you going to generate that extra 400 basis points of return in the future unless you're going to continue to contribute trillions of dollars a year in monetary liquidity and spending. In other words, you've got to go back to QE. You've got to go back to doing more governmental support, et cetera, so forth and so on, in order to keep generating that extra 400 basis points of return. Otherwise, returns in the markets will have to decline to the rate of economic growth plus inflation plus dividends. And if that's the case, you're talking about returning to a more normalized growth rate in the markets and the economy, which may actually seem, for the bulls, disappointing. 
because all of a sudden you're no longer talking about 12% annualized rates of return. You're talking about 4 to 6% rates of return. Economic growth is going to run right around 2%. Dividends are going to run right around 2%. So that's 4%. You subtract out your inflation of roughly 2% when you get there. So you're talking about a 4% rate of return in the market. 2 to 4 but let's even be optimistic and let's just say that we can get a 4 to a 6% rate of return. Let's say that we can just get back to a more normalized level of market returns that drive and are driven by economic activity within the economy. So let's just be optimistic and say we can get 4 to 6% including uh, dividends on a total return basis. That's going to seem awfully disappointing when you're getting 50% less in returns than what you got over the last decade. That may be what we're faced with. Maybe we don't have the recession. Maybe we don't, you know, have this, you know, deep meltdown within the economy that everybody's expecting because of this, you know, monetary liquidity we have floating in the system. The problem, though, becomes down the road unless everyone is committed to continuing to grow the debt at a few trillion a year. We're already at 31 trillion and counting. We know that. Increased levels of government debt lead to slower economic growth, which will impact returns. But unless everybody is committed to the same history of monetary interventions that we had over the last decade, the future return of the market could be disappointing, not negative, just very disappointing by the fact that you are only getting rates of return less than half of what most people have been getting over the last decade. And again, a market that the only market that most investors know today, especially young investors, they only know that liquidity fuel driven market since 2009, where they were getting 12% annualized rates of return. Those days may be gone. The future may be quite disappointing, even though you're getting positive returns, even though you're building wealth for retirement, even though you're doing all those things that the markets were meant to do. It could be very disappointing in terms of expected returns. All right, be right back after the break. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so that's enough heavy stuff for today it's only tuesday we haven't got three more days to go here so uh don't want to completely implode your brain all in one day. Anyway, uh, just something to think about is the importance of the conversation this morning is that, again, it's extremely easy to make a very bearish case for the markets. And I'm not discounting any of that at all, right? But the issue as investors and as investment managers, right, we have to deal with the market that we have and what the market's doing today and what the market's trying to tell us, which can be vastly different than what we think may or may not be the case. 
you know, again, we, we've talked about before, you know, the risk of being overly cautious and being overly concerned about the market's near term. And it makes sense, right? We all want to try to avoid the big drawdown, right? Nobody wants to go through. If you went through 2008 and lost half your investment portfolio, nobody wants to go through that again. Get it. Got it, right? Completely understandable. So it's, it's logical that people want to get out of the market and avoid that. Got it, right? Me too. I don't want to go through it been through it i went through that crash went through the 99 crash went through the 87 crash. i've been i've been through these things right they're not fun the one thing i want to try to help you avoid though is making a decision that compounds into a worse problem in a not too uncommon situation that we run into when we visit with people, and we visit with a lot of people, we talk with a lot of people about their portfolios. One of the not-so-uncommon situations is somebody who got out of the market in 2008, potentially near the lows, and then never got back in the markets. And so this is the one thing that we, we want to try to avoid, and this is a site, and you go, and now your immediate response is, well, that was stupid, Right? But here's how this works out psychologically. Markets are declining. Markets are falling. You're losing more and more money. You're getting more stressed. Finally, everybody reaches the breaking point where I just simply cannot lose any more money. I am out of the market. And you get out. And you get out going, okay, well, I'll just get back in when the market starts to rally again. When, when, things, when all this is over, I'll get back in. And so, you know. Finally, the market starts going up, and then the market goes up a good little bit. And you go, okay, well, it looks like we're finally past the worst of it, so I'll get in on the next pullback, right? Or it's like, I don't think this bear market's over yet. This is just a bounce, and I've seen this before, and the markets are going to go lower. And that was a lot of the attitudes that we saw in 2009, 2010. So when QE1 ran out in 2010, the market did decline. Everybody goes, 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 aha, see, QE's over, and now the markets are declining. We're going back to the low, so I don't want to be in, right? So I'm still out. And then the Fed does QE2, and the market rallies again. It's like, well, this is just another rally. As soon as QE is over, the market's going to fall again, which it did, by the way. But I'm not going to get in. So in 2011, the market declines. We have, you know, we start talking about the debt ceiling issue and, and this, that, and the other thing. And so markets are certainly under pressure. So I'm vindicated, right? I, I'm not in the market still, even though the markets are up, you know, roughly 100% from their lows. I'm, I'm, I'm okay because this is all just, you know, just monetary support. And as soon as that ends, the markets are going to decline. And that certainly made a lot of sense. And then we have the whole fiscal cliff thing. Markets are definitely going to crash because of the debt ceiling issue when we resolved the debt ceiling back in 2011 we put together this commission that said hey you know what if we don't get a, a, a trim a trillion dollars off the budget by the end of 2012 then well these automatic cuts will kick in and man it's just going to be devastating and of course the non the bipartisan commission could not come to any agreements on cuts and sure enough that fiscal cliff set in but what everybody got wrong was those cuts were spread across 10,000 agencies 
And at the same time, Ben Bernanke worried about that debt ceiling issue and that fiscal cliff launched another round of quantitative easing, which those cuts never really came to any great degree. It wasn't this massive impact. These things were so spread out, they were barely felt, which just goes to show you how much waste there is in Washington. But now the market's in liquidity overdrive from quantitative easing. Ben Bernanke kept his foot on the gas for way too long. The market takes off. And as investors, we go, well, that's see, that's just more. I'm just I'm not going to chase that market. It's already too overbought. And as soon as this is over, it's going to correct again and I'll get in. Well, finally, in 2014, Ben Bernanke steps down, Janet Yellen steps in and, and the Fed starts to taper their balance sheet. 2015 2016 we get into a, a bit of a debacle with the brexit and the extraction of liquidity and it's like ah see i'm right and and this is this market's going to decline and i'll get in on this next decline and then ben, uh, janet yellen calls the ecb and the bank of england say y'all need to do qe because we can't do it right now they step in market takes off running again i'll get in next time we're gonna, this, this is just too overbought now, and the markets are just going up, and this is just stupid, and it's just all monetary liquidity. I'll, I'll get in on the, next, on the next decline. Donald Trump gets elected president, enacts tax cuts. Market keeps rallying into 2018. Fed starts hiking rates because things are getting a bit overheated. Aha! See? Fed's going to hike rates. We're going to have this big recession, and I'm going to get in on that decline. Markets are down 20% by the, end of, uh, by the end of 2018. It's like, ah, see, I told you. I'm going to get in this market now. But, man, this market is going to go down a lot lower. I know it's down 20% already, but it's going to go a lot lower before this is over. Fed Jerome Powell says, um, yeah, we're done. We're done hiking rates. We're finished. Market takes off running again. June, July of 2019, Fed starts cutting rates back to zero, starts launching repo. Market's still rallying sharply heading into 2020. Let's just, market's too overbought now. I can't buy here. It's just ridiculous. I'll buy on the next dip. Pandemic comes, market's down 35% a month. Ah, see, I told you. I'm going to, you know, but, but this market's going down a lot more. We just shut down the economy. There's no way this market's going to be down 100% before this is over. I'm, I'm going to buy that bottom. Fed launches quantitative easing. Government starts sending stimulus checks to households, and markets start rallying back to new highs very quickly. Market rallied so fast. Well, I can't get in here because this market just rallied way too fast. All this liquidity is just stupid anyway. It's all going to blow up. We're going to, you know, and this is this is this is all done. So I'm just going to wait until this is all over and I'll get in the markets. My point about this long, detailed story of the last decade is that we meet with people today who have been out of the market since 2008. Yes, they avoided the 50 percent decline in 2008. They missed the 400% advance since then. That is not an uncommon story of people we meet with. My point about this is, is you have to be careful with your money about making these very big predictions about the future and betting heavily on that one direction or the other. Those things typically never work out well. Because there's, the market is dynamic. Things are dynamic. As my story explained, is that every time there was completely logical explanations why this market would have declined a whole lot more than it did, but yet at every turn, 
we were met by some action or reaction by either the Federal Reserve, the government, or simply just better than expected economic data that kept that worse outcome from happening. So markets remained overbought, overvalued. The valuation story was present during the entire 2009 through 2012 market. I'm sorry, 2009 to 2020 market. Markets are overvalued. They're too expensive, so forth and so on. Can't buy here. There was every excuse not to buy. It was hard to find excuses to buy, but that was what you should have been doing. Now, history is easy to look back and say, say, look, you know, this is what you should have done. I made a lot of mistakes during that period. Same reasons everybody else did. Because of valuations, because of technicals, because of all these other things that were going on that didn't make any sense, but that's what was going on with monetary liquidity. Good example in 2020, when the market was melting down 35%, we got out of the market, mostly got out of the market in February, got out of the market more in uh, early, early March before the decline, missed most of the downturn. The problem was, is we didn't get back in fast enough. It took us until June and July to finally get back allocated to the market. It took too long. Because of our logical expectations of what should have happened, and it didn't happen because of all these monetary supports. It's human nature, right? We can do our best analysis. At the end of the day, it's our emotions that tend to get us. And my point about all of this is, is be careful with the emotions. There's a lot of negative headlines. There is a lot of negative information. There's a lot of, of there are many, many, many reasons not to be invested It's harder to find reasons to be invested. But yet that's what's working right now. So the only thing I want you to take away from today's discussion is is just to sit back for a moment and think about how you're positioned and where your thesis might be wrong. That's, that's That's a tough, much tougher assignment than you think because you have to challenge your own views. All right. Thanks for listening to The Real Investment Show today. I promise tomorrow will not be nearly, nearly as heavy because Danny Ratliff will be here when we're talking about that financial planning stuff. So uh, we'll talk about that in the morning. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest blog post out today, how the bulls, uh, how, how the bears actually might be wrong on both stocks and bonds. Is that even possible? That's on the website this morning, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow.